and conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On this week's program, the first of a new year, 2023, we devote the hour to the existential issue of climate change, and especially to the critical question, what did the oil companies know, and when did they know it? We'll hear from eminent climate scientist James Hansen, best-selling author Bill McKibben, and environmental journalist Jeff Dembicki. Stay tuned for a fascinating hour on the climate crisis coming up on the Project Censored Show. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Last month in New York, artist Marsha Annenberg convened a panel discussion on climate change to take place in conjunction with a climate art exhibition at the Ceres Gallery there. She invited three well-qualified guests for this presentation, climate scientist Dr. James Hansen, author Bill McKibben, and environmental journalist Jeff Dembicki. On today's Project Censored show, we'll hear excerpts from all three speakers' remarks at this event. If there's an underlying theme to their presentations, it's that the petroleum industry has known for decades about the climate consequences of burning fossil fuels, but has tried to keep this knowledge from the public. In fact, regular listeners to the Project's Censored show or readers of our work know we've covered these very stories about Exxon, Shell, Mobil, others, over the years. Marsha Annenberg also does wonderful art regarding media censorship issues, particularly around climate issues. She also did our cover for Censored 2014. Now, here's Marsha Annenberg introducing her first two guests. Bill McKibben, and Dr. James Hansen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mayday Earth. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm the artist M. Annenberg, also known as Marsha to my friends and colleagues. First of all, I want to thank the artists who have created a room full of beauty on a subject that is both dire and dangerous. For those on Zoom, photos of the artwork will be posted to Instagram at m.annenberg. This is the third in the series of environmental shows that I've organized its series in the past three years. These shows don't exist in a vacuum. Each exhibit has followed a catastrophic event, a catastrophic climate event. Endangered Earth, which I organized with Anne Shapiro, followed wildfires in Australia, which killed three billion creatures. Earth on the Edge, followed a heat dome in the Pacific Northwest when 1 billion sea creatures boiled to death in low tide off the coast of Vancouver. This past summer in 2022, we witnessed Pakistan, a third of the country underwater. Bill McKibben and Dr. James Hansen, let me say that it is the greatest honor of my life to share the podium with you both. You've been my heroes for years. You are the heroes of thousands of people all over the world. No one has done more to save our beautiful planet than the two of you. And I am deeply moved that you agreed to be part of Mayday Earth. Dr. James Hansen, formerly director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, is an adjunct professor at Columbia's Earth Institute, where he directs the program on climate science awareness and solutions. 
Since the late 1970s, he has focused his research on Earth's climate, especially human-made climate change. Dr. Hansen is best known for his testimony on climate change to congressional committees in the 1980s. In 1988, he famously said, the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1995 and was designated by Time Magazine in 2006 as one of the most 100 most influential people on the earth. I concur. Bill McKibben is a contributing writer to The New Yorker and a founder of Third Act, which organizes people over the age of 60 to work on climate and racial justice. He's won the Gandhi Peace Award and honorary degrees from 19 colleges and universities. He's written over a dozen books about the environment, including his first, The End of Nature, in 1989. He founded the first international grassroots climate campaign, 350.org. How did you come up with the number 350? Well, first of all, let me say a real pleasure to join you. I wrote the first book for a general audience about climate change, a book called The End of Nature back in 1989, a year after Jim's testimony in Congress. And I think for quite a while, I assumed that we should just write more books and have more seminars and papers. And I remember interviewing Jim in 1989. And I said, Jim, what should we be doing about this problem? He said, well, we need a lot more graduate students at work on it. And truthfully, I think both of us may have been naive about the idea that if we just won the argument and showed everybody what was happening, then the powers that be would do what they needed to do. Because why wouldn't they? I mean, if you warn someone that their house is on fire and point them in the direction of the fire extinguisher, it took me way too long to figure out that we had long since won the argument. The science had become entirely clear and robust and consensus reached that normally takes many decades to reach about scientific theories. We were winning the argument. We were just losing the fight because the fight, it turned out, was not about reason and data and evidence. The fight was about what fights are usually about, money and power. And the other side here had so much money and power that it didn't matter to them if they lost the argument, they could keep their business model going, the fossil fuel industry, just fine as long as they didn't lose the fight. So that's when we started organizing 350.org, me and seven college students. It took its strange name from a number that Jim, I asked Jim for, uh, and the number is the highest, even remotely safe level of CO2 in the atmosphere measured in parts per million. And, and it was largely on the basis of that, that we built, you know, the kind of understanding uh, around 350.org. And that became the first big global climate movement. We've organized about 20,000 demonstrations in every country except North Korea. And uh, just to bring the story to its sort of close, more than once I forced poor Jim to go off to jail with us. And every time felt guilty. It's, it's supremely stupid that we have to send scientists to jail in order to get people to pay any attention to what's going on. But we do, and it's has to continue going on, which is why we're now doing, now that I'm an old person, we're now doing this third act organizing to organize old people like me, people over 60 in this fight. And we're having great good luck with 
tens of thousands of people. And right now our big target is the big banks, City, Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, that continue to lend hundreds of billions of dollars to the fossil fuel industry. So that's our small part of all of this. But of course, it does all go back to Jim and the original science around this and the original political courage to get it out in front of people. Thank you so much, Bill. Let me ask you the same question, Dr. Hansen. You were arrested three times protesting mountaintop removal in West Virginia. In 2013, you were arrested in front of the White House protesting Keystone XL. Why did you choose civil disobedience over your laboratory? Well, I got dragged into it. And it was a choice that gradually grew over time. After my uh, testimony in the 1980s and the hoopla that resulted from that, I decided I didn't like that. I thought my role and what I could do usefully is the science. And I resolved to go back to that because I'm not a good communicator. And I stuck to that decision for 15 years until 2004, by which time it was becoming clear that the science was having no impact, no substantial impact, even though there was this United Nations organization, intergovernmental panel on climate change, but it just reported on the climate and governments were not taking any actions that would actually alter our dependence, our growing dependence and growing emissions of fossil fuels. And I had had the opportunity to speak to Vice President Cheney and, and six cabinet members in the younger Bush administration's first term and realized that we're not having any impact. So I decided to give a public talk thinking that I could get attention like I got in 1988 and recommend to people that they vote for the alternative, John Kerry. Of course, I had no impact. I did give my talk and it angered the Bush administration. And the next year, there were calls from the White House to NASA headquarters telling them to shut me up in effect. And it had the opposite effect because I informed Andy Rebkin at the New York Times about the restrictions that had been placed on my public speaking. And that caused a hullabaloo and resulted in me being asked to speak at universities. I gave a talk at Virginia Tech and the students told me about this little mountain man near Coal River Mountain who refused to sell his cabin to the coal company, they suggested I should meet him. Then when I got a telephone call asking me to come to a rally to draw attention to this mountaintop removal, which is an awful practice where they use bulldozers to push the tops off of these West Virginia and Virginia, Kentucky mountaintops into the valleys just to get out a small amount of coal. So I did that and in the process got arrested for the first time. And meeting these people, Larry Gibson was the mountain man's name. 
meeting these people who putting so much on the line in their personal lives, it, it ended up dragging me into the similar activities. And when Larry wanted to have a demonstration in front of the White House, I agreed to do that and we, we got arrested again. And uh, so it's happened five or six times. Thank you for all your activism, Dr. Hansen. This is the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week, we're listening to excerpts of a discussion about climate change presented at the Ceres Gallery in New York City, moderated by the artist Marcia Annenberg, also known as M. Annenberg. In the first half of our show, we're hearing remarks from the writer Bill McKibben and climate scientist James Hansen. Now we'll return to that conversation. Bill, in your book, The End of Nature, you wrote, we have substantially altered the Earth's atmosphere. If you climbed to the top of a mountain in 1960 and sealed a bottle of air and did the same thing this year, the two samples would be substantially different. When we look at the sky and the sea, we think we're seeing the same Earth that we grew up with, but it's a different planet. It feels like the twilight zone to realize that we're living in a different physical dimension. Isn't that what makes global warming so difficult to comprehend? Everything familiar looks the same, but everything has changed. Bill, how do we fight an invisible enemy? Well, either the good news or the bad news is it's not so invisible anymore. <laughs> you know, this was the grave problem 35 years ago when we were starting out. It was very hard to get people to focus because it wasn't obvious. You couldn't see what was going on. Now, sadly, you can see it. You know, we have across the Western United States, fire season stretches all year and our big cities, often their mayors or governors have to tell people to stay inside because the wildfire smoke has gotten so bad. On the cities of the East Coast, Southeast, we increasingly have this sunny day flooding events because sea level has gotten high enough that it doesn't even take a hurricane to bring water into the streets. And this is in the United States where wealth insulates us from the real effects of this, you know, now you're in a, you know, we have places like Pakistan, Pakistan this fall with flooding that we haven't seen since Noah or China this summer, which had a heat wave, probably the most anomalous heat wave in human history. There are weather stations in China where all 30 of their highest ever recorded daily readings came in 2022. So at this point, it's almost the opposite problem almost in that things have gotten scary enough that we have to try and remind people that we haven't yet reached the point where it's appropriate to give up and that there's plenty we can do still to slow things down and limit the ultimate rise of temperature. We have a question. Uh, do you think the COP meetings have been effective? Since I was at the last one, I'll take a quick swing at that. I think they're becoming less effective over time in a lot of ways. I have a feeling that the Paris talks in 2015 were probably the high watermark of a lot of what we're going to get from the UN process. We didn't get new targets this year from any countries, really, any big increase in ambition. I'm going to ask Dr. Hansen. In 2019, a professor of ecology 
Dr. William Ripple circulated a petition that declared a climate emergency with more than 11,000 scientists. Today, that number is 15,000. Do you agree with them, Dr. Hansen? Are we in a climate emergency? Well, we've been in an emergency a long time. The human-made climate forcing, the drive for climate change is more than 10 times greater than any that has occurred in the Earth's history. And the difficulty is the delayed response. That's what's hard to communicate to the public. They don't see that much happening. As Bill said, we're finally seeing things happen. So the emergency has become more apparent. What is not happening is the actions that are needed to deal with the emergency. The fundamental fact is that as long as fossil fuels are allowed to use the atmosphere as a free dumping ground, in fact, they're subsidized. Fossil fuels are subsidized around the world. We're not going to solve the problem. We can build windmills and solar panels and things, but that's not going to stop global use of fossil fuels. What we have to do is make the price of fossil fuels honest. And that means include their cost to society. We're just not doing that. You know, Bill said that the Paris Agreement had some positive things. Well, it did, but the organizers said before it started that we're not gonna talk about putting a price on carbon. It's too complicated. It's not complicated. It's actually very simple. And if the United States would do it, we could achieve a global price on carbon because we're still the biggest economy. We can put border duties on products from countries that don't have a carbon price. That would be the fundamental step that's needed to begin to phase down fossil fuels. But we would need to do it in a way that the public would accept. And, you know, I've been advocating for a carbon fee and dividend. If you collected a fee from the fossil fuel industry at the small number of sources, the domestic mines and the ports of entry, so it's easy to collect, there's a small number of sources. And it would be easy to distribute that money to the public, just an equal amount to all legal residents could be put on debit cards if people don't have a bank account. And that way, most of the people would actually gain money. They would see the price of gasoline going up at the pump, but they would get more than that difference in their monthly dividend. So there's no reason that this can't happen. And in fact, thousands of economists agreed a couple of years ago, yeah, that's the way you have to do it. It makes economic sense and you know, all the former secretaries of the Treasury and the advisors, the presidential advisors, economic advisors, they agreed also. It doesn't happen, though, because our Congress, both political parties, are taking money from special interests. Until we solve that problem, we're unlikely to solve the climate problem. I met with uh, John Kerry when he had been appointed 
by Barack Obama right after Obama was elected in 2008. He chose John Kerry to try to push through a climate bill to begin to address this problem. I met with Kerry in his office for an hour and talked about this carbon fee and dividend. And he ended up saying, that may be best, but I can't get one vote for that. And that's the problem. Instead, they came up with a bill several thousand pages long with giveaways to every special interest that the senators and congressmen wanted to have written into the bill. That simply won't work because those special interests include the fossil fuel industry front and center. So I think that we need a third political party, which has its basis, its first plank in its platform is they will take no money from special interests. We could have a party that would take no money from special interests, but we don't have such a party. Young people, they're getting interested in these issues or gun control, but they find that actually getting the sensible policies doesn't happen because of the money that the politicians are taking. That, I think, is the big fundamental issue. Bill, you recently attended a climate conference called COP27 in Egypt. What was the highlight of the conference for you? And what was the worst part of the conference for you? The worst part was that it took place in what's essentially a police state. So it was very difficult for there to be anything like the normal flow of information and people coming in and out. And the best part was, despite that, lots of good activists managed somehow to get there. And they managed to show a great deal of solidarity with the activists imprisoned in Egyptian jails. It's a reminder that people around the world have built big movements that do their best to try and stand up to unbridled power, whether it's in the form of autocratic governments or autocratic corporations. And truthfully, often autocratic governance and governments and autocratic corporations are absolutely joined at the hip. So that was the best and the worst of it. Dr. Hansen, although your talk to Congress in 1988 was widely reported, strangely, your talk to Congress 20 years later in 2008 was not widely reported, even though you met with our national press in 2007. It was the 20th anniversary of your 1988 talk that shook the world, and yet I could only find Annie Revkin's account in the New York Times that you advocated for a moratorium on coal-burning power plants. But the New York Times left out what I felt was the most important part of your speech. No American newspaper actually reported what I thought was the highlight of your speech. I did, however, find the text in a British newspaper called The Guardian. You called for, quote, the chief executives of large fossil fuel companies to be put on trial for high crimes against humanity and nature. You said this in front of Congress and the press. So, Dr. Hansen, how do you account for the omission of your incredible and brave statement? Incredible, brave statements don't normally get the attention that occurred in 1988, what got the attention of the public was the ongoing extreme climate anomaly in 1988. 
it was a tremendous drought throughout much of the United States. The Mississippi River had almost dried up, and it was more than 100 degrees in Washington, D.C. on the day that I testified. So it was Mother Nature that conspired to give our science report the attention that it needed. That was a very unusual situation and just was a coincidence that I had ready a paper that was going to be published that year in the Journal of Geophysical Research so I could give testimony that got attention. But it was uh, this unusual combination of events, the, the situation in the real world that allowed the testimony to get uh, so much attention. Thank you, Dr. Bill. The investigative group Media Matters has found that coverage of climate issues on corporate TV networks was roughly 1% of all news programming in 2021. That's 1% in a time of climate emergency. Do you infer from this that our democracy is in danger because this reporting is minimized? Our democracy is in danger for lots of reasons. I will say that in the elite media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, even to some degree, the TV networks, the coverage of climate change is so much better than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago that it's almost unbelievable. There are now hundreds of reporters who cover this as their daily beat. But TV is the sort of prime example. It's hard for journalism, even if it wants to, to cover a story this big and this sort of slow moving. It moves just a little too slow to kind of hit the filters of how most journalists and editors kind of see the world. So it's always going to be a problem. But the bigger problem is that all the good coverage that does happen, which over time helps people understand what's going on, is blurred and sort of flooded by the endless, endless, endless greenwashing and advertising and things of the fossil fuel industry. Bob Brule had a report that said, never mind the fossil fuel companies, just their trade associations have spent $3.4 billion on advertising and communication in the last 10 years. So that steady cacophony just always serves to kind of dull the edge. Their message is always the same. Things aren't so bad. We're hard at work on solutions here at Chevron or you know whatever it is. It's all nonsense, but there's so much of it that it drowns out what increasingly is very fine coverage in a lot of ways. Thank you, Bill. Dr. Hansen, in 2013, in an editorial game over for the planet, you said civilization would be at risk if the tar sands of Canada were developed. What do you mean by that? I was referring to the fact that the conventional fossil fuels were becoming depleted in many places. And that was actually our opportunity to move toward alternative clean energy sources. But instead, the fossil fuel industry wanted to move into unconventional fossil fuels. Tar sands is one example, but fracking 
to get oil and to get gas is even a bigger source globally. It's the path that we should not have gone down. We should not go into these unconventional fossil fuels. It's just making a situation now for young people. They're going to have to take out that excess CO2 in the atmosphere. They're going to have to figure out a way because it will not come out on its own very rapidly. So it was a big mistake to go down that path of unconventional fossil fuel. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week, we're listening to excerpts from a climate change discussion that took place last month at New York's Series Gallery, hosted by artist Marsha Annenberg. For the first half hour, we heard climate scientist Dr. James Hansen, long associated with NASA, and now at Columbia University. We also heard the writer Bill McKibben, who has written about climate change since 1989. And up next, we'll hear from environmental journalist Jeff Dembicki, author of the new book, The Petroleum Papers. In this work, the author presents internal documents from the oil industry and its allies showing how the industry has long known about the connection between fossil fuels and global warming, but endeavored to keep this information from the public. As I noted before, Project Censored has covered this issue literally for decades. I'm so happy to introduce Jeff Denbicki, the author of Petroleum Papers. Jeff is an investigative climate change journalist from Alberta home to the Canadian tar sands. He's a frequent contributor to Guardian and Vice. His new book, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change, was named one of the best books of 2022 by the Washington Post. And he was a finalist for the 2022 Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for nonfiction. First question, Jeff, your title, Petroleum Papers, brings to mind the Pentagon Papers which reveals lies about the Vietnam War and also the Panama Papers, which reveal documentation about tax evasion and an offshore law firm. Were you thinking about this tradition of exposing government and corporate malfeasance when you named the book? Yeah, it was about a year and a half ago. My publisher and I were trying to figure out what the title of this book should be. And, and we were throwing around a lot of names. Much of them were, were very bad, and I, I won't repeat them right now. But we were trying to give a snappy title to this giant collection of oil industry documents that I'd been relying on to write the book. And it wasn't only one collection of documents. It was several of them. So there are groups such as DSMOG and the Climate Investigation Center. They have researchers that, that literally go to um, archives in Canada and, and the United States. They go through dusty old boxes and, and find documents produced by the oil and gas industry, many of them confidential, and then scan those, upload them. And, and so over the years, these archives have grown in size. And, and now there's hundreds, if not thousands of these internal documents just stored on various websites. 
So in, in the process of writing this book, I wanted to just read all of them. I wanted to read every single document that the oil industry had produced about climate change going back to the 1950s. And I felt like that would give me sort of like a bird's eye view of how the industry had lied about climate change and, and covered it up. And that's how we came up with the, the petroleum papers. And, it, and it, it does kind of bring to mind the Panama Papers or, or any other number of secret accounts. I think the amazing thing is like all of this information about the oil and gas industry's lies is publicly available. But we wanted people to feel that sense of scandal, that sense of corporate crime, because that's what I think we're talking about here. Jeff, your book reads like a combination of a documentary, a mystery, a novel, and a thriller. How did you come up with the literary device of going back and forth in time, juxtaposing the personal story of Joanna, caught up in Typhoon Haiyan, and factual, hard documentary evidence of corporate misconduct, in order to capture the reader's attention? I felt like I was watching a French movie from my teenage years. Well, I think one of the challenges of writing about climate change is making it exciting and engaging to people and telling it in, in the form of a, a narrative story. And so maybe it was four or five years ago, I can't remember exactly, I was in the Philippines covering a human rights investigation into the causes of climate change. In the Philippines in 2013, they had had this Typhoon Haiyan, which is one of the most powerful storms ever recorded on the planet. It killed thousands of people, and it was a very traumatic event for the country. And so they were trying to figure out how do we hold the people who we believe are accountable for this disaster? How do we bring justice in some way for that? And so the Human Rights Commission there was opening an investigation into several dozen of the largest oil and gas and carbon intensive companies on the planet, including a lot of oil and gas companies that operate in the Canadian tar sands. So I just thought that was a really fascinating development in the history of all of this. And so I, I went to the Philippines and I was covering it for Vice and a few other outlets. But then when I was there, I traveled to Tacloban City, which was sort of the epicenter of Typhoon Haiyan. And it, it had been like absolutely flattened and it was like an utter humanitarian disaster when the, the typhoon hit. And I met this young woman. She was pretty close to my age, a bit younger. And we met up in a, a coffee shop that had been underwater during the typhoon while we were drinking our coffee, she pointed to a watermark on the wall and, and showed me, and it was like high up. I just couldn't believe it. Many of her family members had been killed in the typhoon. We were just having this very difficult, but also fascinating and sort of cathartic conversation about the experience. And then she mentioned to me that in, in the aftermath of that disaster, that had gotten her thinking about climate change for the first time. It was never really on her mind that much before. And so she started working with some climate justice activists in the Philippines. And around this same time is when there was all this new investigative reporting showing that companies like Exxon and Shell had studied climate change going back decades and then hid the findings from the public. So in, in some of those documents, the 
oil companies predicted that climate change could make tropical storms more intense and deadly. And so Joanna was learning about this and she's like, oh my God, these companies knew that a disaster like Haiyan would result from their business model and they covered it up and they lied about it. So for her, this was like a very radicalizing moment. She realized she had been victim of this massive global crime. And so I wanted to set up the book in a way that this sort of took readers on a similar journey to what she had experienced, going from not really thinking about climate change too much, to seeing what the oil companies had learned internally about it, to learning about the cover-up and the crime, and to just leave off burning with this anger for some sort of accountability. There are many shocking revelations in the book, but perhaps the most shocking comes at the beginning. What was atomic physicist Edward Teller doing at an American Petroleum Institute conference in 1959, celebrating 100 years of business held at Columbia? Teller said at the conference, he was a keynote speaker, quote, a 10% increase in CO2 will melt the ice caps and submerge New York. Now, the CEOs of all the oil majors were at this conference because it was a big celebration. So my question is, we thought that Exxon knew in the 1970s. Are you telling us the entire oil industry knew in 1959? Yes. When I was going through all the documents that I could get my hands on about what the oil industry has known about climate change, I was trying to find the earliest possible date where you could credibly say, yes, the industry knew about the dangers of climate change at this time. I think what you're describing is possibly one of the earliest warnings that industry leaders received about climate change. And it's kind of incredible that it, it happened so many years ago in New York City. And the guy who gave the warning, Edward Teller, I mean, he wasn't any sort of environmentalist. He helped invent the atomic bomb. But there's sort of a fascinating history there because the U.S. government after they had realized the destructive potential of these weapons, they began devoting all of this time to studying what the impact of nuclear war might do to weather systems. And it was through that research, actually, that the term environmental sciences was created. And so they, they were some of the, the earliest government researchers begin to understand the greenhouse gas effect, and then later the role that oil and gas plays in leading to climate change. So you, you have this, this government scientist invented one of the most powerful weapons on the planet, warning many oil and gas leaders that their business model could be more destructive to the planet than nuclear war. It's in 1959. What did they all do with this information? They buried it for the most part. And in, in fact, one of the executives who was sitting next to Edward Teller on stage at Columbia his name was Robert Dunlop. He was the head of a, a company called Sun Oil. Four years after this event, Robert Dunlop was up in northern Alberta. His company was helping set up the Canadian tar sands, which were believed to hold more oil than in all of Texas. So the companies did this with eyes open. They fully knew the impacts of these decisions that they were making, even, even way back in the 50s. It's so disturbing. Jeff, you were able to obtain emails from some very nefarious characters 
the story of the oil and gas consultant Michael Watley and the Canadian diplomat Gary Moore sounds like a plot from Dante's Inferno. We all wondered why Obama administration got so little done for the climate, and this chapter really tells us why. California had passed a low carbon fuel standard in 2008, and 11 states had already filed a letter of memorandum to go along to do the same thing in their states. And this guy, Watley, who represented the oil industry, gets together with this guy, Gary Moore, from the diplomatic mission from Alberta in Washington, D.C. It's amazing that you've got all of their emails and you're able to see what was going on between the two of them because actually they derailed the entire thing. Eleven states were about to pass a low-carbon fuel standard and these two people actually forced the states not to and to keep dependent on tar sands oil. And you wouldn't believe it was true unless you read about it. How did you get their emails? Journalists sometimes get their hands on documents like this by filing freedom of information requests. I've only done really one of these in, in my entire life, and, and it really paid off because I decided to ask for all the emails that had been exchanged by this person in the Canadian embassy and, and a guy I knew to be a very prominent oil industry lobbyist. I filed the request, and then six months later, I got this envelope full of 300 pages of their personal emails. And I was just like, oh my God, wow, I can't believe they gave this to me. The story really is quite incredible because it shows how top diplomats in the Canadian government actively worked with all of the big oil companies in the United States to really sort of blunt and weaken Obama's climate change ambitions. And specifically what they were after were any type of policy that would shrink the market for Canadian tar sands, which is still the biggest source of foreign oil to the United States. I don't mean to say that these two people are the only ones doing this type of stuff because there are just tons and tons of efforts like this. But I thought it was so revealing just to hear the players discuss it privately amongst themselves because they're they're very cynical in how they frame all of this. And the whole campaign was based around creating the impression that there were thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of Americans who really care about keeping the tar sands coming into the U.S. But in fact, this is all sort of fabricated and they lay out the strategy very clearly in these emails. And so I, I think this is just like a small glimpse for us in the public to see how industry operates behind the scenes. And in the case of what Obama was trying to do, it was quite effective back then. That kind of feeds into my next question, because the American Petroleum Institute not only studied this problem with their own scientists connecting the burning of fossil fuels and the rising temperature, they actually hired Stanford's scientists to weigh in, and Stanford verified everything that their own people were saying. A guy named James Black actually wrote to the president of Exxon to say, the window is shrinking. We have five to 10 years before the impacts of these was burning of fossil fuels really affect the ecosystems. So the question is, at what point in the writing of your book did you reflect on the sheer criminal indifference to the use of their product by these CEOs and did it affect you emotionally? I kind of knew the basic outline of this story, but the deeper and deeper I went into it, I felt myself getting angrier and angrier. But it was kind of like a clarifying anger to an extent, because 
Once you read through all of the primary documents that companies like Exxon are producing or have produced about climate change, see the warnings that executives are receiving, and then read about the development of campaigns to lie about the science to the public. It's upsetting stuff to read, but it, it had kind of like a calming effect on me too, emotionally, because I was like, here it is. This is the actual story of why we haven't done the stuff we need to on climate change. And you can put names to the people who sabotage our opportunities. The companies are very recognizable. This is the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week, we're listening to excerpts of a discussion about climate change presented in December at the Series Gallery in New York. In the second half of the show, we're hearing remarks from environmental journalist Jeff Dembicki. He is the author of The Petroleum Papers, a recently published expose of how the oil industry knew for decades of the climate consequences of fossil fuel use, but publicly denied them. Now we'll continue with his remarks. I guess I had felt for a while like climate change was kind of this mystery or that there was like some flaw in human nature that prevented us from doing something about it. And by the time I was done the book, I'd become convinced really that it's it's just a small amount of companies and executives who derailed many of our best opportunities to solve this thing. And I think we fully could solve it as a society, but we, we need some way to hold these companies accountable and, and really check their political and economic power. Yeah, there are some groups that sound so benign. The Global Climate Coalition sounds like a concerned environmental group. The National Association of Manufacturers sounds like a place that makes washing machines and vacuum cleaners. Who are these people, really? The National Association of Manufacturers is pretty interesting because they're one of the big trade groups in Washington, and they represent all sorts of big companies. And there was actually a point in the 90s when this association was helping tobacco companies come up with strategies for downplaying fears about cancer related to smoking. And at the same time, the association was helping oil companies come up with strategies to downplay public fears about climate change. And so these two denial strategies were at one point linked up and operating at the same time and being run by the same people. But as we got into the later part of the 90s, the Global Climate Coalition was sort of the main vehicle for spreading disinformation about climate change. And it was set up by all the major oil and gas companies, along with some pretty far-right political organizations like Grover Norquist, Americans for Tax Reform. And this group, the Climate Coalition, you really just can't understate the impact they had on the politics of all this stuff. Because in the years after James Hansen gave his original testimony to Congress about climate change in 1988, there were huge majorities of the public and countries around the world who are really concerned about this. And by the end of the 90s, less than half of Americans at one point even believed that climate change was real. It's just a dramatic shift in opinion. 
And then when the George W. Bush White House fully decided that it wasn't going to have anything to do with the Kyoto Protocol, there was a cable released from the government acknowledging that the Global Climate Coalition was responsible for the government's thinking. So they were incredibly powerful and they had a, a huge impact. We think of Canada as our friendly neighbor to the north, good health care and great cheap pharmaceuticals. And yet in your book, Justin Trudeau comes across as somewhat villainous. For example, he implies that it's better not to deny climate change because it will sell more pipelines. He says to the Calgary Petroleum Club, if we had a stronger environmental policy in this country, then I believe Keystone XL pipeline would have been approved already. He then went on to sign off on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, allowing 600,000 additional barrels of torsians to flow. How did we get Justin Trudeau so wrong? Why do we think he's such a great environmentalist? There's kind of two Trudeaus. There's the Trudeau that people around the world know, who's sort of this environmental leader, and he was welcoming Syrian immigrants at the airport in Toronto at the same time that Trump was doing his Muslim ban. All that stuff sort of plays well to international audiences. But in Canada, Trudeau is not really regarded as progressive at all by most people who are involved in, in the climate movement or care about these things. And if Trudeau were a Democrat, he'd be sort of a centrist, almost right-leaning Democrat with campaign contributions contributed by oil and gas companies. He's cultivated a effective global image but in Canada itself, he's he sort of led the creation of this like friendlier face for the oil and gas industries. The big companies in Canada now, all of their talk is about how their partners in the climate fight, they need to be at the table. They're an essential part of the solution. And it was really Trudeau who helped them come up with that strategy. And the thing that I found most revealing was that right after Trump was elected, Trudeau did all of these press conferences and sent out tweets and whatever, sort of condemning the Trump administration and, and its climate denial and whatever. But then there were internal cables produced by the Canadian government, which were quietly celebrating the election of Trump because it was viewed as an administration that would be very friendly towards Canadian oil. Those were reported in The Guardian a few years ago. Recently, 16 Puerto Rican towns filed a lawsuit in federal court against Exxon, Chevron, and others for environmental damage from our warming climate. The basis for the lawsuit was a fraudulent marketing scheme to convince the public that oil and gas don't harm the climate, contrary to what their own studies were revealing. This deception violates U.S. racketeering law. Do you think this lawsuit stands a good chance of succeeding? Is there more evidence available now than it was previously about the oil majors? We'll see what happens with these lawsuits. They're pretty interesting, though. There's more than 20 of them in the U.S. right now. And they, they more or less make the same argument, which is that leading oil companies deliberately misled the public about climate change and sort of sabotaged our best solutions. And, and now... Um, Places like Puerto Rico are having to deal with the costly impacts of that. There hasn't been any successful climate lawsuit yet. 
and I'm not sure what it would take to sort of push one over the edge, but it's worth remembering the, the history of tobacco. A lot of these lawsuits are deliberately referencing those tobacco lawsuits, and, and in some cases, the same lawyers are working on them. Tobacco is considered an industry so powerful that it was seen as foolish or financially irresponsible for law firms to come after the tobacco companies in the 90s because no one had ever won against them. Then, of course, the industry faced one of the, the biggest corporate settlements in human history after its executives acknowledged that they knew about the links between smoking and cancer. And so I think that's what a lot of these lawsuits now in the U.S., are aiming at, and the Puerto Rican one is, is just the latest example. I guess we'll just see what happens with that. Thank you, Jeff. Questions for Jeff? Marcia, you have mentioned a trend for states to do something to mitigate climate change, and then it was sabotage. How did they do that? Jeff, how did they do that? This specifically was about a policy called a low-carbon fuel standard, but it, it could really apply to any sort of climate policy. And, and base, basically the playbook is state level governments come up with this thing that, that they consider to be like good economic sense and also good for the climate or the environment. And the policymakers who create this, they don't want controversy. They don't want it necessarily all over the media and people both sides screaming about it. They come up with this policy that just, that seems really effective. And so what the oil industry does is, is try to manufacture that controversy and outrage. And so in the case of these policies, they went around to all of the groups that sort of depend on oil, trucking associations, unions that work in, in oil refineries. They identified all of these, these specific groups. And these groups might not even have, have cared about this specific climate policy or even known about it. But they're deliberately selected, and then the oil lobbyists present the policy in the worst possible light to them and give them contact information for decision makers and politicians and basically manufacture this sense of, of outrage. And then the governors and bureaucrats are now getting phone calls and emails from what feels like all sides. It's like the truckers are reaching out, the unions, there's like some citizens group. And then if you get one state folding in kind of a coalition, then the other ones start folding too, and it creates this domino effect. The think tanks and, and conservative groups are getting really good at this. I mean, we, we saw the same thing with critical race theory. It just went from this obscure term to now like every small Republican group in the country is up in arms about it. It's a recognized playbook. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book that they take out radio and TV advertisements with the phone numbers of all the government officials available for people to call immediately as if they were really enraged about something. It's very insidious and very dangerous. There's lawsuits too. A lot of pro-industry groups, they just file lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit with the hope that one will stick. Margaret is asking why 30 years ago didn't the oil and gas companies invest in clean energy? It's all energy, but it's kind of a fundamentally different business model than pulling oil and gas out of the ground. And like one of the companies that I talk about in my book, Imperial Oil, they're owned by Exxon. And they figured out a way to solve climate change in, in the early 1990s, and they wrote um, a report about it. And it included big investments in renewable energy, 
But when Imperial crunched the numbers about this, they learned internally that to truly fix climate change, it would be really bad for its oil and gas operations. And they put numbers to it and they figured that in Canada, they would lose about $900 million worth of profit. So they decided that that revenue loss was so great that they would fight any type of climate solution and put all their might behind stopping the transition. So I, I, I think that's why, even though they have the capacity to do clean energy, they, they just saw the short-term revenue hit as too great. I will take one more question. Have you personally experienced any harassment and intimidation effort? I haven't yet, but I should probably find some wood to knock on. I know that... When Jane Meyer was writing her book on the Koch brothers, Dark Money, the company sent people to monitor her and, and try to dig up dirt on her. And I know there have been industry people that have tried to film Bill McKibben and make like embarrassing videos about him. I would say, at least in those two instances, that stuff has like really blown up in the company's faces. And when it was revealed that Coke Industries was trying to investigate Jane Meyer, that ended up being a huge boost for her book and probably got it out to a lot more people than otherwise would have seen it. And so I think the big companies at least are, are wary about being seen as messing with journalists too much these days, but it could happen. Thank you all so much for coming and thank you, Jeff. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show, the first in 2023. We're now celebrating going into our 13th year on the air. I wanted to give a big shout out and special thanks to our senior producer, Anthony Fest, who did incredible work putting this show together for us. More thanks to Marsha Annenberg, the artist who hosted the event in New York at the Series Gallery. We want to smash, crash, smash, smash, blast the system. Project Censored Show airs on nearly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll see you next time.